Good morning, Cornerstone. I make no apologies this morning for the redundancy of this talk that we're having today. As we discuss and as we learn about justification by faith, I make no apologies for it because Paul the Apostle is making no apologies as he continues to explain just what justification by faith really is. Why does he do that? Why has he spent so much time on this particular topic? I'll tell you why. Because of all the doctrines in the Bible, the doctrine of justification by faith is easy to comprehend in the mind, but it is difficult to accept that God has freely justified us and called us righteous even though we are not. It's easy to understand, but it's so difficult to accept. I had a phone call yesterday with a brother who was struggling with this idea. And he was complaining about his fears. He was worried about his bad habits. He was concerned about his moral standing. He was afraid that he would lose his salvation because he cannot seem to get control of certain of his own impulses. We talk specifically about justification by faith alone as I tried and I tried to convince him that you've already been justified, you're being sanctified, but you've already been called righteous by God and there is nothing to fear. That God has already made the decision, that God has already drawn the conclusion that you are righteous. But, but when you look at your own life, it does not appear to be the case. In fact, when you look at your own life, to be honest, it's not the case. All of us, every one of us in this room has hurts and habits and hangups that we still wrestle with, that we still struggle through. But even in the midst of our struggles, God has called us righteous. That can be difficult to accept. Difficult to accept because it seems like it would be impossible on the one hand, but also difficult to accept because we as humans, we desire to have credit and to take credit for our own righteousness. When you think about the justification of God, that God has called us righteous, even though we are not, it humbles us. In accepting this doctrine, we have to accept that we are sinners. And that the only way we can have an audience with God is by his grace and there is no other way for us. And we have no room to boast. And after explaining all the things Paul has explained so far, now in verse 27, he asks us the question, where then is boasting? What are you proud about? 
because you come to church on Sundays, because you know some Bible verses, because you understand some doctrine. Where is boasting? What cause do you have to boast? Where is boasting? Paul says, listen, boasting is not allowed. Boasting has no place in the walk of faith. There is no reason for me to feel proud or to pat myself on the back no matter how good my day may have been because the truth of the matter is that I am only righteous because God said so and for no other reason. There is no room for boasting. Boasting is not allowed. By what kind of law, Paul says, is boasting not allowed? Of works? In other words, is boasting not allowed because you know that you don't measure up to God's standard? Is that the reason why boasting is not allowed? No, Paul says, that's not the reason. Boasting is not allowed and boasting has been excluded by a law of faith. Boasting or taking credit for righteousness is inconsistent with the law of faith. The law of faith has many principles. There is the principle of endurance where we wait on God. We wait until our change comes, the principle of endurance. The law of faith has many principles. There is the principle of incomplete knowledge that Abraham exercised when he left his father's house and left his kindred and went to a land that he did not even know of. The principle of incomplete knowledge, that's a part of the law of faith. There are a number of biblical principles that help us understand the nature of faith, but Hebrews chapter 11 and verse six shows us that the law of faith consists of only two primary elements. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the writer says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that God exists and must believe that God proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. These are the two fundamental elements of the law of faith. First, the law of existence, to believe that God exists. And the walk of faith always begins with this simple belief. And the word of God be be begins with this same principle. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 simply says, in the beginning, God. The text simply assumes the existence of God. And the text invites us to accept the truth of God's existence without any proof, without any backstory, and without debate. In the beginning, God. You gotta believe that before you can go any further in the book. And the second element of the law of faith is the divine incentive. When a person comes to God, he must first believe that God is and that God rewards those who diligently seek after him, the divine incentive. To believe that God rewards those who seek 
hard after him. To believe that God exists and to believe that God blesses those who look for him. It doesn't get any more simple than that. That the law of faith believes in and believes upon God. The law of faith does not believe in self. The law of faith does not depend upon myself. And as the prophet said, if any man will boast, let him boast in God, not in himself. It is because of God, brothers and sisters, that we are considered righteous and not because of anything that we have done. Paul says that we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Just a couple weeks ago now, we were considering the fact that God operates apart from the law. That there is no law that compels God to act and there is no law that compels God to not act. That God is free. And now today we learn that faith in God also functions. Faith in God also resides apart from the law. That there is no law that commands faith. That faith is free from the law. That faith resides outside of the law's purview, meaning that the law cannot see faith. The law does not recognize faith. So that even right now today, the law continues to call me a sinner, even though by faith in God, I have been called righteous. The law doesn't recognize my faith because faith operates apart from the law. Let's return then to Paul's larger argument to understand what Paul is doing here. Because the larger point that Paul is making is that there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Yes, he's still talking about that same subject. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. And the only thing that distinguishes Jews from Gentiles is the fact that the Jews were under the law. But the pointed observation that Paul makes here is that God is not under the law. And that faith is not under the law. <laughs> so we can conclude, as Paul does, that the law does not justify. And those people who are seeking, looking to the law for their justification, the Jews and the deeply religious Christian, those people who are looking to the law for their justification are in the same sinful predicament as everyone else. There is no distinction. That's what he's doing. He's putting the law in proper perspective so that the Jews can understand their position. So that as he goes on to say in verse 29, God is not the God of the Jews only. God is the God of the Gentiles also. <laughs> Since indeed, he says, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith, is one. God is one. 
And because God is one, God only employs one means by which a person can be justified by faith alone. There is no other means. And with that, Paul has effectively removed the law as an alternative, as a means of justification in the sight of God. Bottom line, if the Jew or the deeply religious will be justified, they will be justified by their faith and not by their obedience to the law. That's clear enough, right? We all got that by now, right? I've said that for the last three weeks. I imagine you're probably like, Calvin, please don't say it again. But now Paul asks a question. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Is that what I'm saying? Do we nullify the law through faith? If the law has nothing to do with my justification before God, do I even need to respect the law? Do we nullify the law since faith is the means of our justification and the rules really do not apply? To nullify means to end something, to invalidate something, to render it powerless. Does the Christian view the law to be no longer valid since he's justified by faith alone? That's what he's asking. And he answers his own question, says, listen, far from it. Far from it. We Christians do not nullify the law of God. And I would add another question to Paul's question. Not only should we nullify the law, but can we nullify the law. Do we have that permission? Do we have the authority to bring the law to an end, to pronounce the law to be irrelevant? Still, the answer is the same. Far from it. We do not have the right to decide that the law no longer holds sway. Only one person can do that. Only one person can do that. And that's what I want us to briefly consider. I want you to notice that Paul does not ask, does God nullify the law? What Paul asks is, do we nullify the law? Paul does not ask whether God viewed the law as no longer necessary. He asks whether or not we should view the law as no longer necessary. You see, you see, God endorsed the law. And only God can nullify the, can nullify the law. Through 10, and this is what he says Hebrews 8 7 through 10. Behold, days are coming when I will bring about a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care about them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds 
and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Pause for a moment. This is God taking counsel with himself. And what he is saying is that the law has not had a positive effect upon the people, that the law does not justify, and therefore God has determined to make a new way. I don't know how you made a way, but I know you will. God has decided to make a new way, and it is the way of faith. And God made the decision to nullify the law. That's a pretty bold statement to make. But the writer of Hebrews interprets for us what this means in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 8. He says this, when God said a new covenant he has made the first covenant obsolete. When God gave the new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is about to disappear. So that in God's deciding to reform his relationship with mankind, he has made the previous law obsolete. He himself, God himself, has nullified the law. But as the text says, even though the law is null, the law has not yet disappeared. Look at the language he used in Hebrews chapter 8. He says that the law is becoming obsolete. He says that the law is growing old. He says that the law is about to disappear. <laughs> so that the law has not completely disappeared yet. The law is still in effect to some degree, even for the Christian. It still serves a limited purpose. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that far from our getting ahead of God and trying to nullify the law on our own, on the contrary, we establish the law, so much for the antinomian. Yes, we're saved by faith alone. Yes, we're saved by grace alone. But we still establish the law. We uphold the law. We maintain the law. We accept the law as being valid. And we don't try to hurry the law of God off the scene. Only God can do that. And the truth is that any Christian that seeks to hurry the law off the scene can only be doing so for one or two reasons. Either that person desires to live a lifestyle of sin without conviction or because that person wants to justify the sins of others. That is the only reason why a Christian would want to nullify the law of God. Think about it. What would be my reason for wanting to nullify the law of God? What is the law hurting? What harm is the law doing? None at all. And for that reason, the Christian does not need to overturn the law. Just the opposite. We should be eager to uphold the law, to learn from the law, and to honor the law as coming from God. And by honoring the law of God, we honor God himself. Not only that, but when we look at Jesus, we see that not only was Jesus Christ not bothered by the law, 
Not only was Jesus not burdened by the law, but Jesus Christ himself upheld the law. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not presume that I came to abolish or to nullify the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish. I came to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to honor the law. Jesus came to establish the law. And that's interesting because even though Jesus knew that by his own coming that the law was being put out to pasture, Jesus saw no need to rush the process. In fact, far from nullifying the law, Jesus gives us our marching orders in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 5. It says this, therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches these laws, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Christians are called to establish the law of God. We do not have the right, we do not have the authority to nullify God's law as given to us in the Old Testament. We owe them respect. Even though we understand that God has already nullified them on our behalf, because there is nothing, brothers and sisters, there is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with the laws of God, what we call the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with them. There is nothing repugnant about the law. And God has not nullified the law because of its flaws. God has nullified the law because of our flaws. The law is righteous. The fact of the matter is that the law of God is more righteous than us. But the law is not righteous by faith. The law is righteous in fact. So that in all actuality, the law is more righteous than me and you. And the only reason that God has sidelined his law is because of his mercy. And even though we cannot live up to the standards that God lays out in his word, it is still our heart's desire to fulfill the law if we do in fact have the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. And, and so with that, Paul has adjusted our perspective of the law so that we can look for our justification outside of its bounds. And for the Gentile, for me and for you, that's a fairly easy thing because we were never under the law. But for the Orthodox Jewish person, Paul has just turned their entire world, Paul has just turned their entire understanding of God and of their relationship to God upside down. To the Orthodox Jew, the law is the pinnacle of holiness and righteousness, the dogma from which they derive their confidence and their hope. And Paul has just demolished the law. The law has been their reason for boasting and Paul has just put the law in a new light, in a different perspective. To the Orthodox Jew, there is no way to know God except by and through the law. Paul has just concluded that their, their confidence is misplaced. They are yet in their sins. 
And so now in chapter four, he appeals to them by using Abraham as the example of the law of faith in action. You see, in Jewish tradition, Abraham became identified as the first Jew. He probably already knew that. Jews consider Abraham to be the first of all the Jews. In Jewish teaching, Abraham is depicted as the embodiment of the faithful Jew upholding God's commandments. He is viewed as a man who is under the law. But was he, Paul asks. In chapter four of Romans, the first verse, Paul asked the question, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, that lets you know he's talking to the Jewish people here. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? Since Abraham is the first Jew, obviously we should look to him to understand what a relationship with God is supposed to look like. What is this thing that Abraham, our forefather in the flesh, has found? What did Abraham discover? What did Abraham learn about having a relationship with God? Did Abraham find that a covenant relationship with God was determined by his works or by his faith? For if Abraham, Paul says, if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, if Abraham wants to believe that he's justified because of his righteous actions, he can believe that all he wants. He can lie to himself and think that he has accomplished righteousness all on his own, all he wants, but he is simply being delusional. Abraham had nothing to boast about. In fact, Abraham was living and participating in astrology before God called him. Abraham came from a family who worshiped the stars when God called him. He has nothing to boast about. He was unfit, he was unworthy to be in covenant relationship with God. He did not earn his righteousness by his good deeds. But Paul asks, what does the scripture say about Abraham? The scripture says simply, Abraham believed God. That's all he did. Abraham believed that God exists. Abraham believed that God would reward the person who diligently sought him with his whole heart. That's what Abraham believed. Abraham believed God Verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not his good works. He believed God and God credited Abraham as being righteous. Now we, we know, we know that to be righteous means to be morally upright. But Abraham was not morally upright. As I said, he came from a family that worshiped the stars, which is immoral all by itself. 
And even after being called morally right by God, later on in Abraham's life story, he lies to Pharaoh and says that his wife is his sister. He was a liar. And according to the law of works, Abraham was not righteous. As a matter of fact, from a chronological perspective, when God called Abraham righteous, there was no law. The law that God gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai came over 400 years after Abraham had lived and died. There was no law when God called Abraham righteous. In other words, then, God called Abraham righteous apart from the law. Before the law had even come into effect, Abraham did not live his life trying to live up to any particular religious standard. He simply believed God. And God decided that faith or belief in him would be the standard of righteousness. So that faith in God precedes, faith in God predates the Ten Commandments. And we can infer that faith has always been the standard of righteousness. Faith has always been the standard of righteousness and not my works. In verse 4, Paul says, now, to the one who works, the wages are not credited as a favor, but as what is due. That's obvious enough. If I go into work every day and work my nine to five and do my job, I expect to get a paycheck, and if I don't, there's going to be trouble. They owe me. But Abraham lived on credit. Abraham lived on credit. He'd never earned the title of being righteous, and no one can. And as we've already discovered, had Abraham worked for righteousness, he would have failed and God would not have owed him anything because all have sinned and no one can meet the standard of righteousness that God gave on Mount Sinai. Can't be done. So that God didn't owe Abraham anything. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe you anything. No matter how good you may think you are, God doesn't owe you anything. God justified Abraham and called Abraham righteous, the Bible says here, as a favor because of his faith. And so Paul makes the observation in verse 5 of chapter 4. That to the one who does not work, let me say that again, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So that Abraham received the wages of righteousness even though he did not deserve them. He did no good work to earn them. Even though Abraham was ungodly. That's what Paul just called him. To be ungodly is to be irreverent, to be impious, to be sacrilegious, and to be ungodly even means to be wicked. That's what Paul just called him. 
That's who Abraham was, ungodly. And the inference is that all of us are just like Abraham. And God called Abraham righteous only as a favor. He calls you and I righteous only as a favor as well. And we are all living on credit. You know, it's said that America, the United States of America, is the richest country in the world. But did you know that 51% of Americans live on credit? Did you know that? 51% of Americans live on credit. As rich as we are, we live on credit. You would never know it if you saw him driving down the street in his fancy car. Oh, no, no. You would think he earned it already. You would not know it if you saw her watering her grass at her lovely home. No, it looks like she's already arrived. It looks like she's already accomplished the American dream. That's what it looks like. But you know what the truth is? The bank holds the deed to her home. The credit union owns the title to his car. And the credit card companies have a stake in all of his debt. We are a nation of debtors. The Bible says that the debtor is always slave to the lender. Well, well, we Christians live on credit as well. <laughs> We're living on the favor of God. We are called righteous only because of God's favor. I, I say it all the time, that God just likes us. And because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, God has given us credit as being what we are not, righteous. And this is why I often say that when most of us get to heaven, we're going to be very surprised at the people we meet in glory. Because as we go around and we judge this one and we judge that one and we, we think we know who's not going to make it in, a lot of us are gonna be very surprised when we see the people who we run into in heaven. Wait a minute, you were a drug dealer. How did you get here on credit? <laughs> How did you get here? <laughs> I got here the same way you got here. All of us are only here by grace. None of us are here because we're worthy. Huh. None of us are here because we're worthy. This is good news for me. Amen. And, and, and I think this is why my walk with Christ has been so enjoyable to me. Because for some reason, God never allowed me to become burdened with doing everything just right. I never have had a care about that. I know that I have favor with God. I know that God likes me already. And I've never, I've never had a sleepless night about sin. If I sin, I turn around and say, God, please forgive me, sorry about that. Let's keep on moving. I've never wrung my hands or worried about, am I worthy, am I capable, am I? No, I'm not already. I already know that. I'm living on credit. I got a credit card. I have a kingdom line of credit. Huh. And when you see your walk with Christ in this way, I'm telling you, you become more free than you could ever have believed. 
Because there is no height, there is no depth, there is no angel, there is no principality that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the confidence we have. Ah, uh-oh. That God is going to be good to his promise. From Eden to Zion. <laughs> I like that song, man. Through every dead end and out of that grave, God is faithful to his promise. And God has promised me that I am already righteous. I have nothing to earn. I don't need to work for this. <laughs> I can't work for this. It is a gift. Some of us have a hard time accepting yes for an answer. But the Bible says in God it's already yes and amen. It's already come on in. You are invited to the banquet feast. It's already, Calvin, you have arrived. Don't make it more difficult than it has to be. And, and, the people who are the most productive in the kingdom of God are the people who have accepted justification on credit. And they are productive because they are not worn down every single day trying to get everything meticulously right. And they can spend their time of freedom serving God. That's how some Christians live the life of faith, like they're walking on a balancing beam all the time. Oh, I'm almost, I'm almost gonna fall. I almost cursed. I almost, I almost got, I almost drunk that liquor. Oh my God! Oh, I'm. Falling. Come on, man, just walk. Just, just walk. You're living on credit. Do not fear. Trust in the promise of God. And when you start living that way, what you find, what you find, because we don't, we don't nullify the law. We don't nullify the law. But what you find that as you begin to trust and have confidence in this grace of God, as you begin to live your life on credit, what you find is that you start walking uprightly without even trying. What you find is that you start living a more holy life without even trying. Because the closer you get to God, the more righteous you will become. <laughs> ah. This excites me. I've been preaching about the grace of God since I was 16 years old. It still excites me the same way. The day I realized as a young man that God just likes me just because. <laughs> And I don't need to be doing anything in particular. God just likes me just because. The day that revelation hit me, it hit me like a ton of bricks and my life has never been the same. <laughs> I know that God likes me. And I know that I have an eternal line of credit through the blood of Jesus Christ. That there is nothing, no one, no sin that I can do that could ever separate me from the love of God. Ah, I could talk to you all for another hour. Don't get mad, I'm about to stop right now. I hope you can feel the freedom in that message. I hope that God gives you a sense of peace. 
If you're struggling today, wrestling and wondering, am I doing it right? Am I getting it right? Am I missing the mark? Stop wondering. Because the answer is already yes. Stop asking the same question. <laughs> no, you're not getting it right. Yes, you're missing the mark. Yeah, we all are. So stop worrying about things you can't control and enjoy your walk with Jesus. close it right there. I'm going to close it right there. I feel like going extemporaneous right now and giving y'all one of those old time sermons, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to cut it off right there. Let's pray. God, I'm so excited about what you've done. Through Jesus Christ, I'm so excited, grateful, and happy to be called one of your own. Not because I always look like you, not because I always act like you, but just because you love me. Thank you for the credit that you have extended to us. Thank you for giving us credit for the things we don't deserve. Our morality credit scores are not high enough to deserve a line of credit. And yet, despite the fact that we are ungodly and unworthy, you have called us righteous. I pray right now, Father God, that you will help us by faith to believe your report about us more than we believe our own actions. <laughs> and that we would live our lives apart from the law. That we would live our lives by faith in you. And as we draw closer to your light, may we become the light, the light of the world. We thank you and we give you praise for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.